Maverick News presents The Rick Walker Show Defrag your mind Good evening, Maverick family and new viewers. Welcome back. Great to have you here at the Maverick News Network for another evening of uh, the world's top stories. What will we talk about tonight? Trump testimony in his uh, civil fraud trial. We'll uh, bring you up to date on that. We'll talk about the Israel-Palestine conflict. You know, I find it even hard to choose the right words. Palestine, Hamas, Middle East. It seems... I, I feel like there's almost no politically correct way to even talk about it anymore. There's so much polarization. If you say something this way, someone gets upset. If you say something that way, someone gets upset. We'll talk about uh, about what's going on over there anyway. Um, a cyber attack. We told you about it a few days ago. This is a cyber attack on hospitals. I'll, uh, I'll bring you right up to speed on that too. And we'll tell you what happened with that carbon tax vote in the House of Commons in Canada. Even though, well, I won't tell you. Maybe you already know what happened. But I'll give you some additional insight into that. And the manifesto of the Nashville shooter has been released. And it is setting off a firestorm. Online, social media is a buzz. And no wonder. No wonder. It looks like the shooter, a transgender person, was specifically targeting kids because of their religion and their race. Horrific. Don't go away. Greetings, brave mavericks. Our quest for truth continues. We go beyond fake news. Together we expose propaganda. Together we pull others out of rabbit holes. We are maverick thinkers. We are all unique individuals. Individuals. Defenders of individual rights and freedoms. Credible. Trusted. Grounded in reality. Maverick News. Maverick News. Defending free speech. Free speech. Donate. At freedomreporters.com. Do it now. Tomorrow. Maybe too late. Too late. Too late. Maverick News. The world is watching.
Donald Trump was on the stand today testifying in his $250 million civil fraud trial in New York. There are some who say this could lead to the dismantling of his business empire. During his testimony, he was engaging with the judge and uh, and the judge was firing back at times, you know, saying that he wasn't there to just listen to Donald Trump, that Trump was there to answer questions and said that he most of the time wasn't. The exchange kind of, well, the judge kind of backed off a bit and Trump kept, you know, attacking and saying that it was, he described it as a witch hunt, said that uh, the whole thing is very unfair um, and uh, accused Attorney General Letitia James of, you know, coming after him. It's, it's all the same stuff we've heard over and over again, of course. It's just that now the trial has commenced. And uh, yeah, Trump, you know, standing his ground on the stand. And it's all about uh, how his properties, like Trump Tower, how it was valued, the, the valuation of it for tax purposes. The allegation, of course, is that he overvalued it substantially. Uh, there was an article in Forbes magazine some years ago that revealed that as he was going for loans, you see, I'm sure you probably already heard this, so I hope I'm not bungling my words here. In order to get better interest rates on loans, the allegation is, is that he overvalued his properties, which, which the prosecution is alleging is fraudulent. You see, if you have more assets, there's less risk for the lending institution, and therefore you can secure better loan rates. Of course, on the other side, if you're valuing your properties for the purposes of taxation, you want the value to be much lower so that you pay less tax, less property tax, less taxes that can also be related to the value of your real estate. And so this is really where the dispute lies is in what, what are Donald Trump's properties really worth? And of course, he's always boasting, saying that they're worth, you know, millions and millions and billions of dollars. And he described today his golf course in Scotland as the best golf course ever built in the world. He uh, he said, I think on the stand, that he estimated the value of his property of Mar-a-Lago at between a billion and a billion five. And there was this article years ago in Forbes magazine, though, that I think probably helped lead the attorney general down this path because there were some documents that Forbes uncovered where Trump said that the size of his apartment in Trump Tower was something like 30,000 square feet. 
of the magazine determined that the actual size was 11,000 square feet. Then Trump today said also that there are disclaimers in his applications for loans, which state clearly that um, there, there could be margins for error in his valuations and that uh, the language in those disclaimers and in the, uh, the contracts is written so that the banks or the lenders have to do their own due diligence and not just take his word for it when assessing values of properties as collateral against uh, which is used against the loans to determine how much he would be eligible for in a loan and, uh, and what interest rates he might have to pay. So these are all, I think, pretty valid arguments on the part of Donald Trump. And it's important to note, I think, as well, and I'm not really hearing too much about this in other media, but when it comes to valuations for purposes of taxation, you know, the, 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 the methods used to determine what those values are are not necessarily reflective of what market conditions are at any given time. For instance, the, if you look at the value of your home, if you're a homeowner and you look at how the mill rate is calculated in a municipality to determine what your, your property value is, then uh, you know, you'll see that it probably comes in a lot lower than the actual market value of your property. So is it a witch hunt? Mm. Yeah, <laughs> it is. It is a witch hunt. It's it's lawfare being used for political purposes and for the judge to sit there and and, and really accuse Trump of using the trial as an opportunity to campaign. It's a bit rich. If you'll excuse my language, rich. It's it really, in my view, this is unprecedented. It's unfair. It is. That's my opinion. But you can make your own assessment. Now, I do have a clip of uh, Trump. As uh, this is what he had to say as he came out of court today, and uh, this is after a day of really sparring with the judge. And man, I'll tell you. You better be careful. Doesn't want to get that judge too upset. Too late. I think it went very well. I think you were there and you listened and you see what a scam this is. This is a case that should have never been brought. It's a case that should be dismissed immediately. The fraud was on behalf of the court. The court was uh, the fraudster in this case. They made references to assets that were very valuable and they said uh, they had no idea they had no idea what the numbers were when they said 18 million dollars for Mar-a-Lago and it's 50 to 100 times that amount by any estimation uh, it's a terrible thing that's happened here we're taking days and days and weeks and weeks and it goes on and then you look at the outside world and what's Happens, but of course they're getting the wish because I don't have to be here for the most part, but I sort of do have to be here because I want to be here because it's a scam. And this is a case that should have never been brought and it's a case that now should be dismissed. Everybody saw what happened today 
Everybody saw what happened with their star witness who admitted that I never told him what he originally said. I did. He admitted that he lied and he has absolutely no credibility whatsoever. That's their only witness. That's their only witness. And I think you saw what I had to say today and it was very conclusive. Everything we did was absolutely right. To think that we're being sued and spending all this time and money and yet people being killed all over the world that this country could stop. With inflation and all of the other problems that this country has, I think it's a disgrace. And when you look at the numbers, the poll numbers that came out today from the New York Times and CBS, I'm sure the Times was not too happy. But people are sick and tired of what's happening. This is a sad, I think it's a very sad day for America. But anyway, this is a case that should have never been brought and it's a case that should be immediately dismissed. Thank you. Thank you very much. And that is the way it went down as Trump was leaving court. And as I said, he better be careful about getting the judge too upset because there's no jury. In the end, it's the judge that will pass judgment. And the judge is only human. So if he's looking for a favorable outcome, he, he better hope that the judge does it by the book <laughs> and doesn't follow emotions because they are, they were like oil and water. Uh, then again, you never know. Maybe, maybe Trump is secretly hoping that he loses and he turns it into some sort of an election thing. I kind of doubt that, but there's always that weird possibility, right? Politics is a strange game and things are often upside down and don't appear to be what they are. So time will tell. Now, I believe, I, I think Ivanka Trump is supposed to take the stand on Wednesday. Don't quote me on that. That one's off the top of my head. Anyway, this, this isn't over yet. More drama and entertainment to come from the Trump trial in the days ahead and more entertainment, information, and enlightenment to come right here, right after this. The New World Order. Government overreach. The Great Reset. Mainstream media lies. Now more than ever, independent voices are needed. Donate now at freedomreporters.com that's freedomreporters.com maverick news the antivirus program for your mind
Maverick News. The world is watching. Carbon heating winter. Winter's almost upon us. I can feel it and smell it in the air every time I go outside. And that means the furnace is going to be on a whole lot more. My furnace has been kicking on every once in a while already. It's November. It's getting cold. And today in the House of Commons, they had that vote on the carbon tax in Canada. Pierre Polyev, leader of the Conservative Party of Canada, trying to turn it into a vote of confidence. It was a non-binding vote, though, so my understanding that even if it had passed, which it didn't, it would not have triggered an election, not at this point. But it did show there was a crack in that NDP liberal alliance, but not for the reasons that you think, that you may think. See, the NDP has this coalition, almost a coalition government with the liberals. They, the liberals have a minority government, which means they can't really get anything done. They don't have enough votes to do anything unless they have the support of some or at least some of the other members of parliament from other parties in the House. So the NDP has sort of an agreement with the liberals that they get certain pieces of legislation or parts of their platform passed. And in exchange, they make sure that the liberals are supported on key votes and they prop them up to keep Justin Trudeau in power so that it doesn't result in a vote of confidence or not, and then re resulting in a vote of non-confidence, which could trigger an election. So the NDP is there to keep Justin Trudeau at the helm. And that's what they have been doing until now with this new carbon tax vote in the House. The NDP today sided with the conservatives. And that seems kind of weird, given everything that's going on. Because the NDP says that they are they're absolutely in favor of fighting climate change. And yet they voted against the carbon tax. And they say the conservatives are serious about fighting the carbon tax. But you see, it's the conservatives who are saying home heating oil, which is actually was going to be given a, uh, a pause on the carbon tax for a period of time, but all other forms of heating would not be uh, provided the same tax break or carve out as they're calling it under this plan. Where was I? I'm so tired. My brain is shifting into neutral. Bottom line, this vote, this motion from Pierre Polyev to pause the carbon tax until the next election so that voters would be able to go to the polls and vote in what he was describing as a carbon tax election was defeated. As you know, about a week ago, 
maybe a little longer. Trudeau said that he was going to pause the carbon tax, but only on home heating oil, not on natural gas or electricity, other forms of home heating. And people were have been up in arms and they're saying, you know, it's not fair. It only benefits a small percentage of people, most of them in eastern Canada, who heat their homes with home heating oil today. Very few people actually do it that way anymore, you know, relatively speaking. And Trudeau saying, no, I'm not going to give that same pause, that same break, pause on this carbon tax to anybody else. Nope, 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 nope. So Pierre Paul, you have forced a vote today in the House. And it was just to say, hey, let's have a vote on this thing and see if uh, you have the support. Now. Like I say, it was non-binding, so no matter what happened, it wasn't going to trigger an election right now. But it could have at some point in the very near future if, if this had shown that Trudeau didn't have the support of the House on this key issue, it could have forced them to then vote on whether they should have a confidence vote. We're not going down that road, though, folks, because, well, the NDP sided with the conservatives, the bloc the separatist party, the Bloc Québécois. They supported the liberals. You know, and the carbon tax doesn't apply to Quebec. So what's going on there? Was there some other deal? made? I don't know. But the Bloc, no. Carbon tax is okay, I guess, with them. And Jagmeet Singh? Don't put too much faith in that. That guy, from his language, he's making it very clear that he's still supportive of the tax. He just says it's divisive, the way that it's being implemented. Translation, it's not being applied to enough people, like not being applied to enough people in Quebec. Trust me on this, man. You think, he, but he, you see, he sided with the conservatives, knowing that it probably would be defeated because he knows that he was, this wins him votes. He gets, he scores points with the public because now he looks like he's a champion of the people. But he knew this thing wasn't going to pass. And even if it had, I'll tell you this, when it comes, when push comes to shove on this issue, he's right there in, in, in step with the liberals on the tax itself. He would tax, if he was in charge, I'm certain he would probably be charging you even more than Trudeau is. The only reason he voted in step with the conservatives today on this issue is because he says it's divisive. It's not being applied evenly with equity or equality across the country. And so that's pitting one region against the other, which is sort of true. It is true. Some people in Ontario are upset that people out East are getting a bigger break on their home heating oil. Well, we have to pay more for our natural gas and, you know, people say, that's not fair. I get it, man. But uh, it is sort of hypocritical, I would say, and it's 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 shadowy, <laughs> cloak and dagger, deceptive politics. 
on behalf of Jagmeet Singh, leader of the NDP. Let's go to the House of Commons and we'll show you a little bit of an exchange from question period leading up to the vote today. And uh, interestingly, and not surprising, is the fact that uh, while this was all unfolding, you know who wasn't there today? You know, I'll give you, I'll give you three guesses, and the first two don't count. Guess who was not in the House of Commons? Who ran away and hid today? Oh, I'll just come right out and tell you, Justin, the Prime Minister himself, not in the House of Commons to hear the music. And I would say that's because he had uh, done a pre-poll of the various members of parliament and they knew this thing was going to fail. Anyway, here's a question. The Honorable Leader of the Opposition. Mr. Speaker, I'm right here while the Prime Minister hides and divides. Why wouldn't he hide? After all, he's in panic mode. He first promised to quadruple the tax on everyone. And then after I beat him in that debate, he decided to back down and lift the tax off 3% of people for a short period of time. His rural affairs minister said that if other Canadians wanted the same pause from the pain, they needed to elect more liberals. Well, Thunder Bay elected two liberals. It's a very cold place. Will the members for Thunder Bay be given a free vote on our motion to take the tax off and keep the heat on? The Honourable Deputy Prime Minister, Minister of Finance. Mr. Speaker, let me tell you who is missing in action when it comes to protecting Canadians and their affordability. And I'm talking about the affordability of life for our seniors. You know who's missing in action? The Conservative leader. It took him 29 days to speak up for the Canada Pension Plan. But none of us should have been surprised because last year he sought to eviscerate that plan, which is so important to every single Canadian, by seeking to freeze contributions. We can't trust Conservatives with our pensions or anything else. The Honourable Member for La Prairie. Mr. Speaker, last week, TVA had to lay off one-third of its workforce. All right. Mr. Speaker. <laughs> what is it about that voice? I'm sorry. I know that it just grates on some people. and I, I just, it's just. just is what it is. Wow. And here's uh, the leader of the block following the vote. Here's what he had to say. Let's pick it up. Yves-Francois Blanchette. Okay, sir. The floor is yours. It's uh, it's uh, let it rip. Here he comes. Going to English in a moment. 
Now in English. There okay. Um, the Bloc Québécois considers that since first this so-called carbon tax does not apply in Quebec, uh, in fact, there is no kind of taxation or tarification about uh, uh, greenhouse gas, em gas emissions in Quebec, which uh, federal tarification or taxes which applies in Quebec. There's none. Quebec has its own system, which works well, uh, and maybe some other Canadian provinces should look into it as an example of things that might be tried. The cap and trade system that Quebec has implemented with California, I was minister back then, uh, has now been, been joined by Washington State, which proves that this might be something interesting to look into. Uh, but uh, gas emissions and its effects uh, on the environment do uh, apply in Quebec. And for such a simple environmental uh, question, of course, of course, the Bloc Québécois will not do as the NDP and vote, strangely, with the Conservatives. Say strangely. Why do you say strangely? And does this question, you think, in your mind and the minds of other people, the NDP's commitment to fighting climate change? You know what? This is... I have said so many times, environment is not a fancy thing that you entertain between crises. It is in and by itself a very important issue. And we have to be constant and patient and determined in those matters. If the federal government wants to improve our gas emission in domestic eating, the good idea is to uh, support the financing of, I do not know how to translate thermophone, heat pumps. Uh, that's a good idea. But reducing taxes on mazout fuel uh, or any other uh, oil or gas uh, type of uh, eating is an idea which goes against the best interests of the whole planet. I sometimes believe that the conservatives are willing to say that there is such a thing as climate change as long as they do nothing about it and as long as we do not touch the interests and the profits of the oil and gas industry. Faire dire que vous votez contre l'abordabilité en votant contre cette motion-là. Parce qu'on l'entend souvent, là, et c'est la ligne des conservateurs. Tu sais, voter bloc, ça coûte cher. Tu n'avez pas peur qu'on vous la remette d'en face, celle-là? Ben, en point de presse, oui. Et. That's enough of that. We're into French again. And uh, let's listen to what uh, Pierre Polyev, conservative leader, had to say following the vote. And here he is. Okay, this was uh, Pierre's moment. And he came, it came up short, but I wouldn't say it was a fail. He pushed the issue. And of course, the conservatives are not the party in power, but it shows that even if you are in opposition, you still have some power because he was still able to push this issue forward, force a vote on it, 
and yeah, it's uh, it's getting some attention, and this will be a major issue heading into the next election, regardless. So here's Pierre Polyev. Coming into English. Dans les communautés sécuritaires. Thank you very much. There. And now in English. Justin Trudeau confirmed again today that he's not worth the cost. But what we learned is that he's now got a new carbon tax coalition with the separatists to divide our country. Given that the NDP was forced to flip-flop on Trudeau's plan to quadruple the tax, he had to find a new partner to keep him in power and avoid this non-confidence vote from passing. And who was there to save him? The separatists. Well, he's now signed on with the separatists to divide Canadians into two separate classes. Those who will have to pay carbon tax on their home heat and a small minority who will get a pause from the pain. All of Trudeau's MPs sold out their constituents and voted to make their home heating more expensive. Trudeau and his costly MPs have divided our country, raised our taxes, and pushed our people out into the cold. After eight years of Justin Trudeau, two million people, a record-smashing two million people, had to go to the food bank in a single month. After eight years of Trudeau, we've had the worst inflation in, a, in four decades and the fastest rises in interest rates in monetary history. After eight years of Trudeau, housing costs have doubled and the share of an average paycheck required to make payments on an average home is higher than ever before. It now takes 25 years to, make, to, to, to save up for a down payment on an average Toronto home. It used to be you'd pay off a, an entire mortgage in that time period before Trudeau. And after eight years of Trudeau, you can now buy a 20-bedroom castle in Scotland for a lower price than a two-bedroom home in Kitchener. After eight years of Trudeau, criminals ask if they can stay in jail longer so that they don't have to get out and pay the rent in his housing hell. And to make matters worse, Trudeau wants to quadruple the carbon tax on your heat, gas, and groceries. So with today's vote, and with his hide and divide strategy, Justin Trudeau has set us up for the carbon tax election. We don't know when it will come, but it will happen. And it will be a simple choice between Justin Trudeau's plan to quadruple the tax on your heat, gas, and groceries, and my common sense plan to axe the tax and bring home lower prices. Thank you very much. Mr. Paul, you have specifically on, you keep promising to axe the tax. I understand you want to axe the carbon tax on consumer, the side, consumer side. Can you clarify, would the Conservatives support a pollution price, a carbon price of any type on the industrial side? Well, the, the heavy industry does not pay the carbon tax. It only applies on the fuel charge only applies on gas, uh, diesel, and, and, and home heating. And so we're going to axe the carbon tax. But would the Conservatives support pricing pollution on the industrial side our, as there is more? Our, our election platform will deal with all these issues. When will we when, see that plan? When the, elect, when the carbon tax election happens, yes. Monsieur Poilievre, à part le vote d'aujourd'hui et à part le vote d'aujourd'hui, qu'est-ce qui vous fait croire qu'une coalition 
avec le bloc et que l'entente avec le NPD, c'est chose du passé. Qu'est-ce qui. Parce que là, vous dites, c'est soit nous, la soit presse. la coalition. Est-ce que vous questionnez la presse? La presse, la presse, la presse a confirmé qu'il y a eu une conversation entre les. les, les well, les we're in the French. We know that it failed. We can uh, bring it to a conclusion there. And I know that will disappoint some people, but maybe disappoint a lot of people, but it shouldn't surprise you. It was, I think, destiny was that it would fail today. But the battle is only just beginning on that front. Carbon tax. Yeah, it will be a major issue. And Polyev wants to fight obviously fight the next election on that issue making it the the central issue in the next election and you know i want to point something out there for all the people who are buying into the rhetoric that the canadian political system is autocratic that uh, you don't get a voice Your vote doesn't count. The Trudeau is a dictator. I get where you're coming from. Um, but you just looked at something there that really shows that the opposite is true. And so you might find some positivity in what we just witnessed. This was democracy in action. This was parliamentary de democracy in action. What we just saw is an issue that is of extreme importance to the Canadian people. And even though Trudeau has control because, well, his government has control, even though he's in, in control as a government because he has the coalition with the NDP, we saw today that an issue can still be pushed forward by the opposition, thrust into the, into the, the public light, parliament forced to deal with it, ask the question, deal with it actually as a vote, a motion put forward by the conservatives in opposition. You see, that's the way the system works. Even if your member of parliament that you elect, if their party is not the party in power, they still get to vote. You still, your MP still represents you, still gets to vote on your behalf with your interests in mind. Now, this particular issue put forward by the conservatives, backed up by the NDP, even though they're the party that has been propping up the liberals, but the bloc votes in favor, well, that they vote to support the liberals and vote against the motion defeating it. But even that should give you some degree of hope that the system isn't completely beyond, you know, beyond your reach, that it's still there to some degree representing us as people. Because think about it, who... Who, what is the block? The block is the separatist party. That also shows that 
even in in the most extreme of circumstance, you have a political party that really represents separatism, which in some countries, maybe even here by many people, would would that would be an example of treason, traitorous behavior. And yet we have a party with elected members in the House representing that point of view. They want to break away from Canada. They want to split the country up. They're there representing specifically the interests of Quebec, which is just a province within the country, but really representing the nationalistic interests of just the province. And it's tolerated because it's part of democracy. It's We're so tolerant and democracy is so prevalent that even that extreme view from a political party that wants to literally break up the country. <laughs> they're given, they're, they're given seats. They're given a voice. He gets to step up to the microphone today. They actually get to vote. And people say that they don't have a voice. The people of Quebec have a pretty powerful voice. In fact, so powerful, the carbon tax doesn't even apply to them. And then people say that we don't have democracy. We have to tear down the system because the people aren't represented and Trudeau's just a, a dictator. No, I don't think so, folks. Trudeau gets one vote. He has a lot of power because he's the leader of the, the governing liberal party. And because he has the name, he carries a lot of clout within the party and within his own government and within the cabinet that he presides over. But these assertions that we just have no voice. It is just simply not true. And we do get to elect these people and they are there to represent us. And sometimes the system doesn't work and there is corruption. And I know all of that, but this was democracy in action today. And even though the motion was defeated, what did it do? It still served a purpose because it still drove the issue forward. It put it front and center today. It got a lot of attention. The public is focused on it. People are tuned right into this issue. It's an issue of extreme importance to people. It's highlighting what the Trudeau liberals and the NDP to some degree, but especially the liberals, it's, it's, it's showing people what they really are about. It's showing their true colors. And it is now going to force this issue as the main issue in the next election. We will have that carbon tax election one way or another. Now, if the motion had passed today, we probably would have had it a lot faster, but it's still coming and that issue will still be front and center. Not to say that the system is perfect. It's not, but I'm just saying folks, don't lose all hope. Don't, you know, have, have, there is cause here for optimism and this shows how the system actually does work. You, it's, you're still represented and, I mean, changes have to be made, no question about that. But this shows, this just shows people how the system works. I hope that it was a moment that was enlightening for people so you can actually see how things are handled. And this was the 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 the, the predication for a possible vote of confidence. It was essentially a vote of confidence, and the liberals won. They still won. Even though they only have a minority government, the bloc stepped up. 
the separatist party <laughs> and they supported the liberals. I, you know, so the issue climate change, voters will get to decide ultimately in the end. But, you know, in the last election, too, voters decided then. And that's also democracy. Just because you lose, just because you don't get what you want. You're you're unhappy. And then I know people say, well, it's all rigged. Well, no, not necessarily. It could just be that there are a lot of people out there who don't think like you do or like I do. And I'm frustrated and I don't want the carbon tax any more than you do. But you have to accept the votes. You have to take your lumps. And I don't think the, the, the public in general wants, I think the majority of people would like a pause or just to ax that stupid tax. I don't think it's helpful to people at all. And I don't, I think it's excessive and I just, I, I'm totally against it. I don't buy into the climate change rhetoric, the way that the government presents it at all. So I'm there with you guys. I'm sure that, you know, the majority of our viewers are against the carbon tax. I'm against it. I think it's a huge cash grab. But you have to accept the vote. And then you have to get into that next election. And you have to push these issues forward. And that's how democracy works. And if you lose, you lose. And if you win, you win. And even if you win, you have to understand that the other side is still going to be there. And they're still going to be coming. See, it's a constant, constant struggle. And you just have to keep on plugging every day, day in, day out. Even if, because you, you win some, you lose some. They win some, they they lose some. And uh, the, the real long-term solution to things is to present good arguments and uh, just keep on fighting the good fight, as they say, right? Anyway. Just pointing out that this was democracy in action. You just witnessed it today. We didn't win it, but we won it. We didn't win the vote, but we we did win because that issue, it's definitely there now up in the face of uh, the general public. And I'm telling you, just look at the polls. The politicians didn't step up today because the, the you know, the block let the whole country down, but what do you expect? They're a bunch of separatists um, <laughs> who don't believe in the country anyway, really, ultimately. So didn't win, but we won. People are now more aware than ever of the issue, and it will be the issue. If not the issue, by the time we get to the polls, it'll be one of the main issues. People don't want it. So it's really, really, really going to hurt Trudeau. As much as they keep pushing the climate change agenda, the people are seeing through what the liberals are really all about. So have faith, folks. Or have hope anyway. Don't have blind faith. Don't do that. But you can take some hope away from this. That uh, things are going to change. And I'm seeing people say, oh, he's not going to step down. He's a dictator. Yeah, his days are numbered. You mark my words. He's not going to recover in the polls. He's not going to recover. He is going to Bye-bye, sooner than you think. He may come back down the road, but something's going to happen here. I can feel it in my bones. I can smell it. The winds of change are blowing. Can't you feel it? Can't you? I sure can. I can feel it. It's right over there.
the New World Order. Government Overreach The Great Reset Mainstream Media Lies Now more than ever, independent voices are needed. Donate now, at FreedomReporters.com That's FreedomReporters.com Maverick News The Antivirus Program For Your Mind We are Mavericks. We say no to the Trudeau and Biden New World Order. And to bugs. Because bugs are creepy and gross. And people should not eat bugs. Maverick News. The world is watching. You know, I think every premier in on uh, in Canada now has lined up is lined up against Trudeau on the carbon tax issue. Now that we talk about it, um, let me just check here. Yeah, so here's a report. It says Canada's premiers lashed out at the federal government saying Ottawa is treading on thin ice by signing bilateral housing deals directly with municipalities while leaving provinces out of the mix. So there's this housing issue. The premiers of Canada, all 10 of them, and uh, I'm not sure about the what's going on with the, with the territories, but uh, the premiers certainly are in alignment against Trudeau on the housing issue as well as the carbon tax issue so i know they were talking about the housing thing today yeah and they've all come out they've it's i think it's unanimous now yeah premiers are demand a carbon tax reprieve right here in addition to their criticism of how ottawa doles out housing funds the premiers raised concerns about the carbon tax trudeau announced last month that home heating oil would be exempt from the carbon tax for a three-year period while the federal government ramps up a program to subsidize the purchase of heat pumps, which generally run on electricity. While the carbon tax exemption is national in scope, Atlantic Canadians will disproportionately benefit from the program because residents there are more likely to use oil to heat their homes. And that has prompted claims that the pause is unfair because other energy consumers are left paying the carbon tax. Some premiers said said that the uh, the carbon tax is punitive because it imposes costs on people, even when their provinces are working to reduce emissions in other ways. So you see, there's a lot. In fact, Saskatchewan Premier Scott Moe uh, said that his government's plan is to instruct the provincially owned Sask Energy to stop collecting the carbon tax on power until there's a nationwide reprieve. Um, we reported that the other night too. So 
Trudeau's not out of the woods on this. Even though the vote was lost, the issue is still front and center. This is democracy in action. People are seeing through the climate change agenda. Because some people are literally freezing. <laughs> this going to be freezing this winter because of the cost of everything. The cost of the tax. The cost of fuel at the pumps. For your, for your car, gasoline, 60 cents a liter additional. I mean, come on. Come on. And for those American viewers, 3.78 liters in a gallon. 3.78, almost four times. So that's $2.40 extra per gallon in taxation. $2.40. How do you like them apples? As Pierre Polyev would like to say. <laughs> I don't like those apples. They're, they're, uh, those are crab apples, man. It makes me crabby. What else do we have for you tonight? We have this uh, story about the Nashville shooter, the manifesto, the transgender Nashville shooter. So this manifesto is leaked, um, obtained by Stephen Crowder and first posted on the Louder with Crowder podcast. And uh, it has been verified. This is authentic. Let me see if I can show you. Here it is here. Show you a picture of. Here, here we go. This is uh, an image of the, the manifesto, if you want to call it that. Notes scribbled in a in a notepad, and look at what was written. Here we go. Show you this. This is uh, this is posted in the Post Millennial says kill those kids and again you know i should i should forewarn you this is a little bit disturbing so viewer discretion advised folks just uh making you aware okay here it is kill those kids those crackers going to private fancy schools with those fancy khakis and sports backpacks LOL there. Menu or meal daddies. Mustangs and convertibles. F you little. Well, you can read it there. I wish to shoot your weak ass <clears throat> blanks with your mop yellow hair. Want to kill all you little crackers. Bunch of little. F's with your white privileges, F you, and again, a pejorative slur. So, needless to say, that's beyond disturbing. So, 
So according to that article in the Post Millennial, the three it was a three-page handwritten letter, first discovered and made public by Louder with Crowder. It reveals that Aubrey or Audrey Aiden Hale, 28 years old, carefully planned the final moments as well as the mass shooting at the Covenant School on March 27th. And then police moved in and shot and killed Hale. Three small children, three members of the school staff, three kids, three school staff members were killed. And this manifesto, as it's being referred to, is written in that spiral notebook with different ideas and obviously, as you saw, heavy racial language. And there's there's more in that book as well. There's also a, a, a picture of a, a pistol and a target that was drawn with the words death day along with the date of the mass shooting. And uh, a lot of this information is being removed from social media tonight. So if this broadcast is taken down, you'll know why. It's because we're talking about it and they don't want it talked about. And you can reach your own determination on why they don't want people talking about it. Very uncomfortable for some people, for a lot of people. It's uncomfortable all the way around, I guess. But as you can see, it doesn't fit the narrative for some people with particular political views. And that manifesto was apparently never supposed to be released to the public. Very sensitive information. And tonight, I'm not seeing it, honestly. And I'm going to check here, actually. Is it being reported on really the major networks at all? I haven't seen it on any of the major networks. Just scanning ABC here, for instance. Not seeing anything here. I think that uh, I am seeing some reports from regional, local media in that area. And no, I'm not seeing it on the other uh, major network sites. Which should, should tell you something, too. It isn't just what they report. It's what they choose not to report. Well, we reported it here. And now you know whether they like it or not. It happened. So you're aware. Let me take another break. We'll come back on the other side. We've got more.
Greetings brave mavericks. Our quest for truth continues. We go beyond fake news. Together we expose propaganda. Together we pull others. Out. Of rabbit holes. We are maverick thinkers. We are all unique individuals. Individuals. Defenders of individual rights. And freedoms. Credible. Trusted. Grounded in reality. Maverick News. Maverick News. Defending free speech. Free speech. Donate. At freedomreporters.com. Do it now. Tomorrow. Maybe too late. Too late. Too late. Too late. Maverick News. The world is watching. And uh, then there's this from the BBC. More protests, pro-Palestinian protests. And these things seem to be escalating. Police are having a hard time with crowds. It's, um, this is worldwide, really. They're calling this bonfire night violence. Eight police officers have been injured in what police describe as organized. Yeah, bonfire night clashes. And, you know, those fireworks, you know, really in and of themselves don't, uh, don't hurt anyone unless they're fired directly at a person, like a police officer. But they are intimidating. They are, you know, they're scary. They can be a little bit scary because if you point them straight at somebody, of course, you can seriously hurt someone. In fact, I've seen instances in the past where people have been killed by fireworks. But anyway, um, the crowds, as you've seen, have been massive in many places with these pro-Palestinian rallies or protests or whatever you want to call them. Here's one in Indonesia. This is not from today, but I just bring up the size and the scope of it. Huge, just huge crowds. I don't know. I don't think this stuff is just organic, not worldwide like this. This is in my estimation this is something more these are people being hmm, targeted in a way that coordinates this stuff 
massive, massive crowds. Today I was watching, uh, I did actually tune into InfoWars because Ezra Levat from Rebel Media was guest hosting in the absence of Alex Jones. And he had a lot to say about these protests. And I think he had some valid things to say. He's very concerned about the rise in what he describes as anti-Semitism. How you define that depends on your perspective on the issue. What is anti-Semitism? Well, we all know what it means. Some people just choose to redefine it to suit a narrative. Uh, but as Ezra said today, he thinks that uh, he's less concerned about the actual war right now in, you know, between Israel and Hamas, if you want to describe it that way. And he's more concerned about the security risks that we are facing right here on the home front. I, I kind of agree with that. Just from a selfish point of view, as someone living here, yes, I see the unrest. Yes, I am concerned about our safety, the safety of people. I've been concerned about it for quite a while. And with all the protests that we're seeing on the streets, yeah, it's very volatile. It's, 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 it's a fragile piece that we have here in the United States and Canada, in particular here in Canada. And as I think about it more and more and more and more, you know, people are picking sides in this dispute. And it's really, for Canada, a no-win scenario. It really is a no-win scenario. Which, you know, I'm tired of Canada being placed in these no-win scenarios. Because we, as a, as a catch-all solution, a problem-solving nation for the rest of the world, it seems, or a dumping ground even for problems, that's what we've become in many respects. And we're damned if we do and damned if we don't, damned when we do and damned when we don't. And we rarely don't. We generally do. And so we get it on all sides. We get the praise and the criticism because we step up and try to do the right thing all the time as a country, as people. And then we take it on the chin from at least one side, no matter what we do. And that is what's playing out here again. What am I talking about? Well, I mean, like I said, when this when this thing first started on October 7th with that attack by Hamas against Israel, I said, day one, cue the immigration. And here's, I believe that this must be, I don't know, but I, I, I think this is, I don't know what television network this is, but look at what, what the comments are. And it doesn't even matter where this is from. The comment just, it is just raw reality. <laughs> it just, it just is. The immigrant, the just the, they're gonna, <coughs> excuse me, they are gonna, they are going to resettle most of these people from the Gaza Strip. 
It's better to be a refugee in Canada than in Gaza. And they mentioned Canada by name. And I think it was Biden who came up with a plan, if if I remember correctly, and this is about a week ago, where they specifically mentioned Canada as a destination, where one of the main destinations to take a bunch of refugees from Gaza as a result of this conflict, as people have been pushed out of their homes and out of the Gaza Strip. And I said, yeah, Canada will end up taking them. Of course we will. We always do. And here we go. He says, so, and let me just recue it right here, right off. This He mentions Canada first up. It's better to be a refugee in Canada than in Gaza. There are 2.5 million people. Each country takes 25,100 countries. In 100 countries, that's humane, Money. and that needs to be done. It won't. It won't be like that. It won't be proportional. It won't be evenly distributed. We're going to take a whole bunch here. You'll. You wait, and you'll see. If they are refugees, it's better to be a refugee in Canada than in Gaza. In the world, if the world wants to solve the Palestinian problem. They have the ability to do so. I'm reading the captions for people just listening on the podcast. So that is that is the bottom line. A lot of people upset about it. You've got this rise in racial tensions, uh, you know, prejudice surrounding religion. I totally get it. And, you know, when people are faced with the task the challenge of taking in refugees again uh, and, and, you know, absorbing not just the people, but the world's problems. I, I get why, I get why people get upset and these situations fuel negative emotions and actions. Canada right now takes almost a one close to 1 million new immigrants every single year. Immigration is already at record highs for this country. We are one-tenth the population of the United States. One-tenth. Ten percent. Just a few years ago, the population of Canada was just over 30 million. Now we're at 40 million. The, the, the fabric of the country has fundamentally changed in a very short period of time, and it will continue to change very, very quickly because of all the immigration that we're already involved with every single year. Now you add in more of this, and people are like, I didn't realize that we had that many Palestinians in the country because look how many spilled out onto the streets to protest after October 7th. Thousands and thousands and people just weren't even aware. But it's all there. And like it or don't like it, take whatever position you want on that. That's the new reality in Canada. But, you know, it's like... (laughs) The rhetoric has become so twisted 
And the anti-Semitic rhetoric in particular has ramped up so much that it doesn't matter what happens. Canada is going to be a villain in this. We're already the villain in this. People, and in particular, people supporting Hamas, Palestine, they don't understand that, you know, well, let me just back it up here a little bit. Everything has become so twisted that Israel is being portrayed as Nazis. And then on Parliament Hill yesterday, we see at the pro-Palestine rally, a swastika displayed. Trudeau and Polyev, politicians, come out, condemn that, saying there's no place for, for a swastika on Parliament Hill. And then, of course, people then automatically chime in and remind everyone that the government, you know, the, 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 the Nazi that they had in Parliament. And then now, so you see, Canada is the Nazi nation. And, and I've already addressed that, you know, I, it is what it is. And then it, it the whole issue over there in the Middle East is about col colonization, colonialism, same issue that we have here in Canada with First Nations. And so it doesn't matter, you see, if you... On the one hand, if you take in a bunch of Palestinian refugees, and among them, some members of Hamas, you would be then accused of being uh, uh, sympathetic to a terrorist cause. If you don't take them in, you're going to be accused of being racist and um, insensitive and even inhumane. If you don't take them in, you'll be accused of supporting Israel. If you do take them in, you'll be accused of not supporting Israel. doesn't matter what you do. You're already viewed as a, a, a Nazi nation because everything has been conflated. And as you work this thing out, you war, you war game this out if you want, or you know, you figure out where does all this lead? doesn't matter what happens you know who's going to you know who gets blamed look in the mirror look in the mirror it's not going to matter what the country does it doesn't matter what you do it's not going to matter because it boils down to an issue of colonization colonialism and by extension, it's the new definition of fascism or authoritarianism or Nazism. I see where it's going. It doesn't matter what you do. You're going to get blamed. We're all going to get blamed. Just like that's, that's where it ends up. Just letting you know. You're not going to be able to win this. Not, not like this. Because <clears throat> these narratives, which are not really entirely 
in some cases they use some real facts and then there's emotion and then there's conflation and interpretation and very little room for nuance and there's relitigation of the past and a complete unwillingness to forgive anything anything and we're being canada as a nation and i mean when i say canada as a nation i mean everybody doesn't matter what your race is doesn't matter what you know what your back i'm just telling you man this is where it's going and uh it's already there actually and people are engaging in this self-flagellation and I think that sometimes people think that if they take this side or that side, they'll save themselves because they'll be spared the judgment when that day comes. Judgment coming from boom. Well, look in the streets, look who's protesting. And you can figure it out, I guess. Be careful, folks. I just don't know what else to say. I don't think things are looking that good. And today when I watched Ezra on um, InfoWars, he had some very valid points. He's concerned about security on the home front. He's concerned that the kind of attack that we saw on Israel on October 7th, could we could see something similar even right here. He's concerned about that. that open border down there, uh, you know, in the, between the U S and Mexico, we see the people pouring in literally, not just from that area of the world, but from all over the world, they're finding their way into the United States through that portal. It leaves the U S very vulnerable. It leaves Canada very vulnerable. A lot of, you know, should we be concerned about, a terrorist attack here? Yeah, I mean, I would say, yeah. Because we don't know everybody that's coming in here. And uh, like we have throughout history, Canada takes in everybody, man. We people, Trudeau says diversity is our strength. No, it's not. As I've said many times, it's our challenge. And one of the biggest parts of that challenge, one of the biggest components of that challenge is is the depth of the diversity we don't know where a lot of where some of these people are at with their ideology and intelligence services are already concerned they know that the demonstrations that we're seeing worldwide that we're seeing that you know, the violence in the Middle East, they know that it could spill over easily now into North America. And it has to be something that we're watching. And we've seen terrorist attacks already here in Canada over the last number of years. These things, I think Canadians generally, you know, short memory. It uh, it fades pretty quickly as it's... Uh, as the news cycle spins day to day, week to week.
but the danger is certainly there. And when you see massive crowds outside government buildings and cities around the world and Western cities and police officers being attacked by these crowds, and you see also these signs that seem and huge numbers of flags, Palestinian flags, huge numbers of flags out at these demonstrations and signs, like I pointed out yesterday, professionally printed. And they they were there right from the very beginning when these protests began. Don't tell me that these protests are entirely organic. They didn't just spring up. Somebody was planning these things. People were involved in coordinating these things. People were motivated to get out there. How did they mobilize so many people so quickly worldwide? I'll tell you why. These things, your computer screens, social media, information warfare. We're at war. People forget that because it's a new kind of war. And you can't really blame these other countries for doing what they're doing. But open your eyes, like really open your eyes. And then think about the stuff that you're being told. Every single day, you're being hammered, aren't you? Hammered, hammered, hammered with information that makes you hate your country. Every single day. Do you hate your country? Or do you love your country? Why do you hate your country so much suddenly? I've been sitting here telling you a lot of things that are wrong with your country for the past three years because there's a whole lot wrong with it. But I still love my country. But I also know that when things go bad or things get twisted, there are other countries that are going to take advantage of that. That's what they do. The CIA does it in other countries, and sometimes they even do it here. But other countries get involved in doing it to us too. China is at war with us. And yet, (laughs) we still do business with them. Strange, you know, during World War II... We were still trading with Germany during much of that. And, uh, you know, even Henry Ford was doing business over in in Germany while the war was going on. Uh, Companies, you know, the money was still flowing. Trade was still happening. Isn't that weird? It seems very weird, right? Same thing now. We're actually at war with China. Uh, The Canadian military coming right out and saying that. That we're at war with Russia and China. And uh, and yet, you know, you can order stuff online <laughs> from China and it just shows up at your door. And that's because this is a different kind of warfare. It's largely information warfare. It's designed to destabilize. We're, we're I think, ending what has been a period of concerted effort to destabilize Western nations. 
and our political adversaries, our national, our global adversaries, Russia, China, India, Brazil, South Africa, even now. These countries, they're all in alignment. They're aligned against us. They're the Axis powers. We're the allies. We're war. It's just, that's the reality. And so you're getting hit with stuff every single day. We, we, all, we all are with information, just letting you know. And it's designed to get people upset, angry. That's just the way the game is played. You think about it. There's a lot of stuff wrong with the country. And as we point out the problems with the country, some people, you know, the other country, they're going to take advantage of that. And they're going to, with information warfare, amplify it, amplify those problems. And then even take it beyond to do whatever they can do to undermine confidence, trust in institutions, trust in your government, to erode all of that. And they, they do it in a wide range of ways. Uh, Yuri Bezmenov, former KGB agent, right? He's kind of, a, I would say, a freedom hero. He drew a lot of attention to this back in the 80s. And pretty much everything that he said has been playing out. Only now with these more powerful tools that we have, that they have at their disposal, the internet, social media, psychological manipulation techniques, the MK Ultra stuff probably taken to a whole new level. And I think also uh, people being encouraged to use drugs to ply them and make them more impressionable, pliable, malleable. As they sit in, as we all sit in front of our computer screens, it's a lot easier to kind of, I think, hit people with uh, suggestion when their minds are open to creative thinking. <laughs> yeah, you take a little LSD, and the next thing you know, you're thinking about yellow submarines. but it's scaring me because this has been going on for a long time and it is choreographed. You can see it clearly. This is something we absolutely need to talk about more because I'm seeing so I'm seeing here in Canada and the U S people actually acting against their own best interests and cheering it on. And I'm not sure man, where it's going to end up. But it ain't looking good. It's not looking good. I guess on the positive side, I did go out today. I had to go down to the store like I normally do, and everything seems to be pretty normal. But it's not normal. You can feel it. There's still this weight that's there from the pandemic. There's still the weight that's there um, because of this 
government, you know, and don't, and here's the thing. This is also what makes it so difficult to know what to do, to even know who the enemy is or how to fight back because the enemy is within. That's how they're tearing the country down. They're doing it from within. And I'll put it to you that our prime minister may well be compromised. So that makes it really hard to know what to do, right? But even within the government and even within the bureaucrat, the bureaucracy, there are people in there who are corrupted, compromised, who have different interests from different countries, which further complicates things. And when you're a corrupt politician, the biggest problem with some of them is that they're actually trying to serve more than one master. And I'm not talking about just, you know, trying to serve the country that elected them, but also the master, the, the, the one of the, they might have two, three, four different masters that they've made deals with, deals with the devil, maybe on three or four fronts. You think about JT. You think about that. Why does he act the way he acts? Why does he, why has he done the things that he has done? It sometimes just doesn't make sense, does it? Well, it does if you <clears throat> step back and look at CSIS and the reports that we've received from the RCMP talking about confirmed Chinese intervention, efforts to intervene in our political processes and to influence politicians. Makes perfect sense, really. India? Isn't it weird? How, like, if you, if you don't really understand it, it just looks weird that suddenly there's this rift between India and, you know, the, the head of the Indian government and Trudeau. But why is that? It's because... Jagmeet Singh, NDP, Justin Trudeau, they've aligned themselves with the Khalistani separatists who are viewed by the government of India as terrorists. And they have taken in some of the leadership of the Khalistani movement. They've given them Canadian citizenship. They're protecting them here while they continue with dual citizenship in Canada, from Canada, to coordinate their political activities back in India. The Indian government doesn't like it. Why would Trudeau and Jagmeet Singh do such a thing? Well, you can put two and two together and start to figure it out, can't you? Are you starting to see it? So there's China, there's India. Then he has to worry about the home front. Where else might he have some obligations? And what does that make him? Is he a fascist or a communist? Or, Well, he's a member of the WEF, right? So he's got that. And he seems to be their poster boy. So I don't know what obligations he might have there. But man, he's got a lot of balls in the air, that boy, doesn't he? Is he acting in the best interests of Canada? And look at the levels of immigration, folks. 
Look at other politicians too, like Patrick Brown. You can look this up. This has actually been reported. It's public knowledge. He said that if he had been elected leader of the conservative party, when he ran for the leadership, I believe he's, was he mayor, was mayor of Brampton, was it? I think it's Brampton. He said that he would take the Tamil Tigers off Canada's list of terrorist groups. In exchange for what? And then he did still end up being elected mayor there, even after, you know, there were hit jobs done on him. Why do you think those hit jobs were done? Because some people, I think, probably knew what was going on. But anyway, that's public knowledge. You can look that up. There are newspaper reports where he acknowledged that he was going to do that. Again, just put two and two together. So what, what, you know, well, he's a fascist. He's a communist. He's a global. Well, you know what he is? He's an opportunist. They're all opportunists. These guys who end up being corrupted in one way or another, they get in there, they have power. They can make things happen, can't they? And people want things to happen. So governments, companies, individuals, real estate developers, Corporations, they all want access. How do you get access? Campaign contributions. You can see it if you really dig, if you really look. And then you have this information warfare stuff that goes on as well, right on top of all of that. And it's happening. Ah, uh, yep. It's absolutely happening. I've said many times that when it comes to democracy, democracy's Achilles heel, its greatest weakness is democracy. Because people who are not acting in good faith can run for office. And they can get elected and they can do a lot of damage in there. But I still believe in democracy because we have to give the people their voice. And speaking of a voice, you know, the, 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 one of the other great weaknesses of a free and democratic society is free speech. Free speech. It's our strength, but it's our weakness. It makes it a great place to live because people can speak their mind, express themselves. But at the same time, it leaves us vulnerable, doesn't it? Because people can not only express opposing points of view, but they can actually spread lies. And when they're doing it, it isn't illegal. Although they're trying to make these things illegal with more censorship, and you can see why they're trying to tamp down their political opposition. That would even include me. And I'm sitting here trying to tell you the truth. But how do you know I'm trying to tell you the truth? Because everybody says they're trying to tell you the truth, but are they? A lot of people who say they're telling the truth are actually engaging in nothing but lies. I'm seeing that very plainly. 
that free speech is one of the greatest weaknesses of a free and democratic society, yet at the same time, it's absolutely vital. It's a cornerstone, which is also one of the things that props it up. But that's why you have an obligation to get it right. I can sit here night after night and do my due diligence and do my very best to bring you factual information and to try to make you aware of these things. But folks, you also have an obligation. You have to really start to look at stuff and you have to do some soul searching. And it's up to you to determine if the information that you're getting is factual or if it's a lie and it is not enough to simply determine that say the mainstream media is lying to you. Therefore, everything they're telling you is a lie. Therefore the, uh, this other guy or this other side, everything they say must be the truth. It is not that simple. There's truth over there and there's some truth over there. And all of these lies are wrapped in truth. Or maybe there's truth at the center, maybe, and there's lies wrapped around them. Either way, it's a mix of information. But you, ha you have an obligation. Now more than ever, it's on you. Everybody has to look at this stuff and say, is this true? Is this real? Because I'm telling you, they are filling people's heads. The government's doing it. Other governments are doing it. Companies are doing it, corporations, political activists. Now more than, it's up to you. You have an obligation. And uh, I don't know how you're going to do it. Media literacy is today. <laughs> People are more media literate now than they have been in the past. But I think the technology has progressed, is progressing at such a rapid pace that it is virtually almost impossible for the average person to figure out, it, you know, if, if this stuff is true or not. In other words, people are going to get duped quite a bit. People are being duped a lot. And they're being sucked down, not only into rabbit holes, but just into narratives. And they're being steered down even anti-Semitic roads. They've been primed for it. You think back to uh, the earliest days of film. You know, there were, how does, how does this little piece of history go? There was... I think it was one of the first films ever made and it was of a train and it looks like the train is coming. Like it's a shot of, the, of a train coming toward the screen. And when they showed this to people who hadn't seen films before, they thought it was real and they freaked out and they thought they were going to get run over by a train and it was just black and white. It's true. War of the Worlds, when it was first broadcast, people believed, it, a lot of people believed it was true. They thought we were being invaded by Martians. There's some lag, you see, between 
media technology and the advancement of media technology and media literacy. And the general public is way behind. And it's accelerating at an unprecedented rate. Last night, we were talking about Grok. Grok. Elon Musk's artificial intelligence system. How's your brain going to keep up with that? You're talking about transhumanism, right? Well, guess what, man? There's stuff in your phone straight into your brain right now. Used to be that they would just drop leaflets on the enemy and say, you should give up. <laughs> your country sucks. Surrender. It's in your best interest. You'll like it. They used to do that. Just drop leaflets, flyers from airplanes and hope for the best. It's a little more sophisticated now, isn't it? A lot more sophisticated. MK Ultra. Some of the crap I see online too. It's all, you know, it's uh, some of it's, it, they, 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 they've gotten to the point where they take people so far down these rabbit holes that the stories are like, I mean, absolutely, obviously ludicrous and unbelievable. And yet so many people still believe them. But I put it to you, the like what, a month ago or so? The 5G zombie apocalypse, right? And didn't we make a deal? Maybe it was a one-sided deal because I said, yeah, let's make a deal. And I made a deal. And I said that these people online <laughs> who said there was going to be a 5G zombie apocalypse, you know, all the people who got the juice in the arm and then they were going to get hit with the 5G thing and it was going to turn all the people into zombies. And I showed you some of these pro on prominent online social media influencers and a couple of people who I think are actually puppet masters in that regard, who were also online saying the same stuff. And I said, on that day, if there is no 5G zombie apocalypse, if you don't see zombies, you know, staggering through the streets, eating people's brains, then can we agree then that some of this stuff is actually bunk? Would that be enough? Because I said it was bunk. Well, the day came and it went and there was no 5G zombie apocalypse. And then I said, well, and I actually said, in fact, we'll give it a week or two to see if we get the 5G zombie apocalypse. How about that? Give it a little extra time just in case after getting hit with all the 5G, the, the zombie thing just take, needs time to kick in. Maybe, maybe after getting hit with it, the, the, it takes time to get zombified. Well, it's been, I think, over a month, well over a month now, maybe a month and a half. I don't know. I went to the store today. I didn't see anybody eating anybody's brains. Not around here. Oh, right. It was in the States. Not so much here. It was in the States. I haven't seen any reports of zombie, zombies eating brains. Anybody out there see any zombies eating brains today? Any of our U.S. viewers? <laughs> Jeez. Oh, my God. No, I think that you guys are smart enough. Most of you realize that there was not going to be a 5G zombie apocalypse, and there, there wasn't. 
but it shows you some people really do take that stuff seriously. Sad. I think it's sad because some people actually were, were people were, some people were actually fearful, afraid. <laughs> yeah. Sheepwalker says they're all in Ottawa. LOL. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. They're in parliament. They're all mindless zombies. They go, ah, 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 ah. <coughs> when they clap for the Nazi, <laughs> there you go. Proof that it actually did happen. That was the 5G zombie apocalypse in action right there. Our politicians. Oh, man. What are we going to do? We've got we've got big problems here, I think, folks. And uh, it's not just the war. It's what's happening here. It's what's going to continue to happen here over the next number of years. It's what could happen here like tomorrow. Nothing against any particular group of people or anything like that. I'm just telling you, we've got a real problem because the, our diversity is not our strength. It's our damn challenge because we have, you know, if you think about it, it's like tropical fish, right? Fred. Hey, Fred. Fred, the freedom fish. He's over there. I should have put him on TV tonight, I guess. Um, TV. See how old I am? This isn't TV. Still full motion video, though. Um, 30 frames per second. Full high definition. Fred's over there swimming around. But I know that if I put other fish in there, he's either going to kill them or they're going to kill him. I could put, like, guppies in there and they just nip at his fins. You know? It's just, that's... Natural law. You want to talk about common law, natural law? That's it right there. You get some goldfish in there in the, in a couple of groupers and a swordfish and then put a Siamese fighting fish in there like Fred. And things ain't going to go well. Unless you find a way to keep them kind of separated just enough so that they don't nip at each other's fins. I got Fred because I wanted to talk about how to create a society, right? We put Fred in there and we started to have those conversations. How do you create a, a great society, a utopian society, a, a country, if you will? What constitutes sovereignty? And there were all of these questions. We were going to go through the process of creating a nation state for Fred, a place of freedom, hopefully if we were able to get that far. We haven't talked a lot about it of late, but as I sit here and think about everything going on around the world, that little exercise that we were engaged in there, that nation building exercise, if you want to call it that, or societal creation exercise, it's uh, kind of relevant to talk about it right now. How many other what are, how many other fish do you put in there? Where should they come from? What kind of fish would be compatible with Fred? Not very many. He's uh, the he's the he's just a, a certain temperament, right? He'll fight back. He's a fighting fish. You put another Siamese fighting fish in there, they'll kill each other. 
And then people say, we just need to get away from codified law. We need natural law. Oh. Okay. Well, that's natural law. <laughs> yeah. Survival of the fittest. You want to go there? And then if you get a lot more of this kind of fish than that kind of fish, <laughs> they kind of take over the tank. And the next thing you know, you've got swordfish law or you've got grouper law. Natural law. I guess in the end, there's just no denying the laws of nature, even when it comes to the economy. They can print all the money they want and try to defy the laws of nature. But at the end of the day, they still have to deal with the realities of inflation, interest rates, property rights, everything that comes into play as they try to keep everything afloat. There's no getting around it. You can cheat nature for a little while. You can fly your airplane for a little while, but eventually you run out of fuel and what goes up must come down. So you have to strike a balance somehow, find a way to keep it refueled in air, I suppose. And then I sit and think about modern monetary theory. How long can they keep this thing going? How, how far can they inflate all of this stuff? And they can inflate the living crap out of it, but if they do it too quickly as they have been, because they've been printing way too much money way too fast, then people lose their spending power too quickly if inflation accelerates at too rapid a pace. And that creates more instability. And that seems to be what we're getting right now. It's a repeat of history in that way. But you combine all these things, all this immigration, the wars, the um, BRICS nations aligning against uh, you know the US and the allies, the NATO countries, it's a whole new world disorder. And out of this, will we get some sort of order? I sure as heck hope so, but I'm not that optimistic right now. It seems like it's pretty chaotic, but people need to understand that what we're facing here is a situation, folks, where we are at war. And our government may well not be acting entirely in our own best interests. And I was thinking about this the other day, too. You know, it was really, really not wise to encourage Ukraine to go head to head with Russia, was it? Because it seemed like it, I said right from the beginning, too, that there was no way Ukraine could win this thing. So if you were really, 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 really evil, and you were serving as the leader of, um, say, a Western nation. But you were really, really evil and didn't give a damn and maybe got paid off or whatever. And you wanted to do real damage to Ukraine. What would you do? You might just say, yeah, you guys should go to war. And when they do, what do you get? Oh, you get a lot of dead people. What constitutes a genocide?
how many people have to die. Colonel McGregor said that the uh, he estimated, and this was about a month ago, the number of Ukrainian troops that had been killed, somewhere around 400,000. That was his number. Maybe that was combined Ukrainian troops and civilians. In any event, that's a lot of people. And it 400,000. Is that a genocide? Or is that excusable? See, everybody's always looking for justification to kill other people, right? At that level. As I said, these guys play by a different set of rules. When you're a worldwide, world leader, gangster kind of guy, you get to just uh, do what you want with impunity a lot of the time. And people say, well, you're going to be hauled up in front of the International Criminal Court. We're going to take you to the ICC off to the Hague with you, Nuremberg 2.0. Yeah, good luck. 400,000. And then some people sit there and say, well, it's just a bunch of Nazis. No, they're human beings, man. Ukrainian people, those soldiers, all of them, human beings. Sorry, they are. But, you know, you kill 400,000 people and it just becomes a statistic, doesn't it? And then look at what's going on right now in Israel and Palestine. People picking sides and people spinning up their narrative and their hate one way or the other. How many people have died? It ain't 400,000, not yet. You've got 2.5 million Palestinians in the Gaza Strip. What are you going to do with them all? Where are you going to send them? What are you going to do? You're going to bomb them all to death? How about on the other side? Well, it isn't just situation in Palestine anymore, is it? No, because look at the people in the streets. What's that? Ah, that's a prelude of things to come if I've ever seen it. There they are at the gates of the capital, rattling those gates. J6, pfft. that ain't nothing compared to what I think is maybe coming. Who's the Nazi? Everybody's a Nazi. You're a Nazi. They're a Nazi. He's a Nazi. She's a Nazi. And then you've got people out there saying, wouldn't you like to be a Nazi too? No, thanks. How about a communist? How about a conservative? <laughs> people have learned nothing. Nothing. My God. What are we going to do, folks? I'm seeing so much of it so clearly now. I can see very clearly who's doing what. Not everything. But I think I got about 80% of it. Maybe 90. I know. But I try to tell people they think I'm nuts. Maybe I am. Maybe I'm down the rabbit hole. I don't 
think so, though. Because it's just too damn clear. And it ain't the kind of narrative that I'm hearing from the people who just don't like the Jews. It ain't that. Nope. That's a cliche. That's a trope. That's a trap. And that leads to genocide. And that seems to be where some people want to go on both sides. Can't let that happen. But they're going to blame us. Why? Because we're the occupiers. See? Doesn't matter what we do. We're the occupiers. Like I said last night, it's not so much just about understanding what happened in World War II. It goes back further than that. It's about colonialism. Who's to blame? See? It's the same issue in Palestine as it is right here in Canada. It's the same issue in the United States as well. Now, the United States is a little bit different because you did have 70, 70, 1776. And you decoupled from the monarchy. But you're still occupiers. You might be a republic, but you're still occupiers. We are too. Somebody's going to blame us. We're being blamed now. We're blaming ourselves. Self-flagellation. Get out the whip and whip yourself. Feel good? What's the solution? What are we going to do? Where are we going to go? All those people being pushed out of Gaza, off their land by the occupiers. And then where are they going to go? Huh. Named front and center in that clip earlier tonight. What was the name of the country? Oh, yeah. Canada. Bring them all over. They won't be distributed up evenly but between 100 countries. They're coming here. Maybe not all of them, but a whole lot of them. And we've got a lot of them here now, and that's okay. That's fine. But who supported Israel? Who helped create Israel? Who was responsible for the Balfour Declaration? Oh, that's all British stuff, right? That's all monarchy. How did Canada come into existence? doctrine of discovery oh man how far back you want to go who will be held accountable and who will be held to extreme account I think maybe all of us look in the mirror what did our friend say the other day who was carrying that New version of the swastika. What did he say? I think he said those exact words, didn't he? Yeah, in that clip that I ran. Look in the mirror. Are we to blame? Is it that bad? 
Have we been that bad? What are we guilty of? What will we be held accountable for? Occupation is justification for resistance. That's what I'm hearing in the streets. Occupation is justification for resistance. I'm hearing people say that anything that Hamas does, anything that is done in the name of freeing Palestine is justified because of the occupation. Wow. Wow. One man's terrorist is another man's freedom fighter. Do you see where it goes? What are we going to do? How do we solve these problems? What's the solution? I don't know. Depends on what you want to hold on to from the past, what you want justice for. How far back do you want to go? Are you ever going to let anything go? You going to harbor it all? Keep it all in here and keep angry. Stay angry. Everybody on every side can be angry at the other side for stuff done like 6,000 years ago. Who killed Jesus? Your fault. Well, Donna, I am speaking for myself. You can think whatever you want. Making you angry, Donna? Says Donna. Donna says, speak for yourself, Rick. Yeah, you're not a true freedom fighter, Rick. Whatever. I'm so sick of people telling me that. You try sitting in this chair. And then you say what you think. You speak for yourself and see how people come after you. It's fine. You know what, man? I see a lot of bullshit from a lot of BS artists out there who are full of crap who say they're freedom fighters. Yeah, really? Really? I hear a lot of crap from people who don't know what the hell they're talking about. You chase it after every stupid idea and every stupid conspiracy and follow every freaking dumb idea. And what do they do in pursuit of freedom? They just undermine it, make it worse, and give the government excuses to take our freedoms away because of their stupidity. And I'm so tired of it. You want to talk about freedom? We'll have a goddamn conversation about freedom. I've been fighting for freedom since before you thought about it. Since before all this pandemic crap started, that's why I got into journalism over 30 years ago. Because nothing to me is more important than freedom, real freedom, not BS freedom, and not spun up lying narratives to create division 
and all you people calling for unity, 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 unity for what? Unity for your side. You don't want unity. You want polarization. You want unity on your side. Unity within your group so that you can fight against something else. You're not talking about unity nationally. You're not talking about unity to bring people together in peace. You're, you must unify behind us. I see, I'm seeing it so clearly. And people are like, yeah. But you're only unifying because you want to fight those guys over there. You're not really interested in peace either. You just want to fight. Admit it. Think about it. Think about what your unity is getting you. It's getting you polarization. Unity within your little tribe. Because people aren't able to think beyond that these days. There's no solution in that. There's just more friction, violence, anger, fighting. We need some real solutions, man. I don't mean to sit here and criticize people for trying, but I mean, for crying out loud. I also see people running around in circles and circles and circles and circles and circles and doing the same stupid things over and over again, getting us nowhere. And that's why so many people have kind of just gone off and given up. Then I sit here and bring you the information, you know, and people don't want to hear it. Because you're too busy listening to other stuff that gets you angry. And, you know, I'm so sick and tired, Carrie, of people saying that to me. I've given people solutions here. I've given a lot of solutions, Carrie. So listen up. Because we do have solutions. And I've also laid out the fact that a lot of these solutions are not even really that complicated. So I'll tell you what, Carrie, and love you, but I mean, for crying out loud, you want to criticize me? You want to say, what's your solution? I've given people solutions. I've told people how to get involved. Some of these things have actually happened. You get involved in your local politics. You get involved in, your, in, in, in politics at the political party level to affect change in the in the party platforms. You carry that forward into parliament when you get yourself, get your party elected. You don't like what the conservatives are doing? Get involved with the party and take the damn party over. I don't mean to attack you, Carrie. I'm just frustrated as hell. But you're attacking me. Or maybe not. Maybe I'm just flying off the handle because I'm getting too emotional. So I apologize if I am. But what's your solution, Rick? Got to change the Charter of Rights and Freedoms. There's a formula for doing that. That is at the, the heart of everything that happened here. You know, I got involved in this fight. I started this channel with Brendan, or resurrected it. I actually started this channel in the infancy of YouTube to do exactly what we're doing right now. It's just that in the early days, there was no way to make it viable because it was too early. I was way too ahead of the curve. So it got put on a shelf, and then I resurrected the thing 
reconstituted it for the freedom convoy so we could hold all sides accountable and show the world what was going on as that all happened. And then from there, this channel continued to grow. And I was practicing my journalism again. But I got involved in this whole thing because of the lockdowns and the masking and the mandates and all of that stuff because the government was clearly overreaching, right? We needed to do something. So I was fighting. And I said, well, how can we, Brendan and I were like, well, maybe we'll go to Ottawa. Check out this convoy thing. What's that all about? And then I said, you know, man, how can I contribute best? Journalism, that's what I do. Media. So let's do this. And this is what I've been doing because it's what I do best. It's what I'm, I'm a professional. I've been doing this all my life. So I'm trying to help this way. Free speech platform. You know, man, since then, things have gotten really freaking weird. And it's, you know, so many people out there, they're just after clicks and money or power or, or profile. They just want to build their channels or they want to, I don't know, do something political that's not really about, you know, it's just different motivations. And there's just been an ongoing concerted effort to try to keep the freedom movement going. And so they're grabbing all these different issues to just try and keep it accelerated, you know? And I get it, but it's it seems to have lost. It, it's turned into, it's morphed into something weird and uh, unproductive. In, in many cases, that's why so many people have left. You can't keep people engaged because it's, you know, the focus, which, you know, I think that's why the convoy was so embraced. It was because at that moment in time, there was that issue, right? It was the mandates. It was the pandemic. It was all of that stuff. That's what brought people together. But these other issues that, people are using to try to keep the movement alive. They're complex. And now you have this, essentially it's, it's turned into a populist political movement with people from various sides of the political spectrum getting involved. You've got people on the left, people on the right, people in the middle, people from up here, from down there with this religion and that religion and this ethnicity and, and you've got all these tropical fish coming in together and you know, the, in the, the, there's this, the mandates galvanized everyone together. They brought everyone together. Now, you know, these, this, as people come together, that these issues, it's not as cohesive. It's again, it's just so challenging. It's really, really hard to keep any populist movement together. Historically, you can go back and look at the history of populist movements. They always face that same challenge because you get all these people with diverse views. You know, you get pro-labor, you get conservatives, you get capitalists, you get communists in there, you even get anarchists, you get everybody in there. And it can be really hard to harness that and control it, or at least like when I say control it, I mean, keep it under control so that it doesn't get out of control. 
or break apart. And that's largely too what you're seeing all the time. You're seeing all this fighting within that, these groups. Because they have different interests. And there's not really something cohesive to really bind it all together at that moment. The mandates, that was that was the thing that brought it all together. I'm still sort of there. And so over the next year or two, whatever, I don't know, man, like this, that it, it's just going to evolve even more. And you'll see ebbs and flows and who knows where it's going to go. It depends on what happens in the world. I do know this, these wars, they, they're changing everything and it's getting us into a new, a new phase. And in addition to that, you know, I'm seeing the influence of outside forces, outside governments in all of this social media, psyop, information warfare stuff going on. And it's been, it's pretty clear to me that we've been going through probably about at least 10, maybe 12 years of heavy duty destabilization efforts on that front that have really ramped up in the last three, two and a half and I think we're kind of getting to the end of that phase and they're trying to now implement the next phase. Beware. Just trying to bring your attention to it. If you don't know what I'm talking about, go watch some of those videos with Yuri Bezmanov. Former KGB agent. There's some videos of him online where he talks about all of this stuff and everything he says in there is very relevant today. Even though it's from the 80s, the same techniques are being used today only in more sophisticated ways, because now the internet is there. And I think you guys know who I'm talking about, right? Yuri Bezmanov? Go check him out. Maybe we'll touch on it more in the nights ahead. Anyway, sorry, Carrie, I didn't mean to hammer on you so much, but uh, whatever. You don't have to listen to me. You don't have to agree with me. And I do apologize if I took it the wrong way. Do apologize. But I have offered solutions and I, I have to just say I'm just tired of people attacking me honestly saying oh yeah well what's your solution we should just go with the guys who want to go do stupid stuff and you know the stupid stuff that i'm talking about i don't even understand why people support it because it doesn't work anyway Anybody want to say anything in the chat? Let me look in the chat. Yeah, here you go. Um, Stoic teacher says, full interview with ex-KGB Yuri Bezmanov. Yep, and here's a link. I'll put it in the other chat too. Go check them guy out. I'm telling you, man, everything this guy said, everything he says, it's all happening. It's all, or most of it's already happened. You can see it. 
there's Yuri Bezmenov's link. Just put it in the chat there. It's all true, man. It's all true. Okay, I'm typing it out here. I'm putting it in the chat. You go watch it. You'll see. You think about what he's saying, and uh, you'll see it. You'll understand what I'm talking about. He's better at explaining it than me because it is complicated. And that's from years ago, right? 80s. Yet you can see it plain as day. He lays it all out for you. Plain as day. And I am sorry, Carrie. I hope you come back. Yeah, I just put the link there. Uh, Magic says long video. Link where? Curly May says link. Where's the link? And I'll put it here. Link to Yuri. Put it in there one more time. There it is. That will help make you more media literate. That stuff they should be teaching in school today. And he actually addresses other issues like, you know, the education system, how that gets targeted, labor unions. What have we been seeing with labor unions of late? Oh, yeah, they were having secret meetings to stand against the Million March for Children, right? Why? Because labor unions, when first formed, maybe had the best interests of workers in mind at first, but no, they today, what are they really about? Ideology. Ideology. They're political in nature. And they aren't really just there to represent workers. And hence your secret meetings. We have to get out in the street and fight all the freedom people because of the LGBTQ. Well, I said, and I said, when all of that was going on, I sat here and I said, no, that's completely inappropriate. Get back to what you're supposed to be doing. Represent the workers in the factories. Why are you getting involved in street protests on LGBTQ plus S right stuff? <clears throat> because of exactly what Yuri Bezmenov talks about in this video that I put the link up there for. That's one of the things that he talks about. He also talks about infiltration of, uh, you know, cultural institutions, movies, music, government itself, the military. What have we seen with our military? What's going on with our military? Don't get the juice. Get those people out. They're not compliant. And oh, yeah. And also, yeah, not, you, you can have long hair now. And um, diversity is our strength. What about religion? Well, they've eroded religion. How, how many times have I sat here and I've said our country, our society has lacks moral compass now, right? We've lost our moral compass. Why is that? 
we're, we've become very secular. Why is all that happening? Watch the video with Yuri Bezmenov. Watch the video with Yuri Bezmenov. And then let's see if we can find some solutions. I've sat here and I have offered people real, you know, solid strategies. And, and some of what I've said has been echoed by some other people. And I'm seeing some people execute these kinds of activities, these actions. Absolutely. But not enough of it. We need a lot more of that and a whole lot of other, this other, a whole lot less of the stuff where people are chasing their tails around. And engage, honestly, because of what Yuri Bezmenov is talking about, what I'm seeing is people who are well-intentioned are actually out there fighting against themselves. They're be, what they're doing is actually counterproductive. It makes me want to pull my hair out. Because I can see what they're doing. And while they, I know they mean really well, but they're engaged in, they're fighting for, some, for the exact thing that they think they're fighting against. Because everything that's being done is so sophisticated that they get duped. That's why you see LGBTQS plus activists in the street Supporting Hamas. So if they went to the Middle East, they'd get thrown off a building. Doesn't even make any sense. And there's stuff going on on the other side, too. You tell me, is, does that sound sane? <laughs> The whole world's gone nuts. Everything's upside down. And now suddenly Jews are Nazis. <laughs> the other side's Nazis, but not. They're <sighs> yet if you if you go watch that video, Yuri Bezmenov, think about the politics. And then just look at what you know what these other countries are doing. Just remember, okay? I have nothing really against China, and I don't even have against anything against Russia. Russia today is not a communist country like it was back in the days of the Soviet Union. In fact, I would say it's an oligarchy. It's very capitalistic. These BRICS nations, they are capitalist nations. They're predicating their existence as this new axis on capitalism. It's all based on a new currency that they're setting up. It's a new form of capitalism. It's certainly not communism. Although these countries, maybe like China is communist, it's complicated, right? But, but they have adopted mercantile capitalism. And it's that that is really has really propelled their economy forward. So what we're seeing happen right now is these BRICS nations positioning themselves. And they are, um, you know, if you're up against the most powerful military in the world, which the United States still is, 
And then you've got China as sort of like number two. And Russia is powerful, but they're kind of a, a third. And if you want to get smart, and they are, you don't just attack your adversary. Like, you don't attack Godzilla head on. What are they doing? It's information warfare. It's destabilization efforts. It's they're playing the long game. The Chinese do that. They've come in and they've inf, inf, they, they're influencing our institutions. They're using money to influence academia, media, social media influencers. And when they see problems in our society, they kind of help those problems along with social media. That's, that's the strategy, right? You, you don't, <laughs> if, you, if you see a political movement that's destructive within your adversary's system, then you maybe help that, <laughs> help that along. Smart. So what they so that's what they're doing. And then you see what's going on around the world and you take a, a larger aerial view of what is happening. Look at what's going on in Panama right now. Has anyone paid any attention in Panama? There is unrest in the streets. There's huge protests down there. It's not so much about Palestine, Israel. It's about mining. It's about... Um, Natural resource sovereignty. It's about colonialization again. It's because there's a Canadian mining company that's at the center of this, and it's at a copper mine. There's a copper mine down there, and there massive protests have erupted over this issue where a lot of people feel, who are protesting in the streets, that Panama is being exploited, that the resources are being exploited. And at the center of it, a Canadian company, which I think may play out and end up being something pretty important. But why Panama and why this, why this issue right now in the midst of all this other chaos around the world? Think about it. This is a company that goes down there and invests. And it and that one mine alone, I believe, is I think it was like 23% of the GDP or something, a crazy amount of money and huge number of jobs created by this mine. And yet the people have been sold this idea that it's a really negative thing. And maybe it is, but it's erupted into this massive protest, and the government has had trouble as a result of this even holding on to, I guess, political stability in the face of the massive protests down there. And you know, you go back and you look at your history of Panama and the things that come to mind for me is, you know, Reagan, Manuel Noriega, um, the US invasion of Panama. Um, Originally, you know, when the Panama Canal was built, the United States was supposed to essentially control it in perpetuity. But because of conflicts over time, they ended up turning ownership over. And that canal 
is a major, major asset to trade and the West. Because without that canal, the ship's got to go all the way around. Or where are they going around? What's in the middle of that? Brazil. What's right next door to Panama? Brazil. What are the BRICS nations? Oh, yeah, Brazil, Russia, India, China, South Africa. Kind of interesting, isn't it? Strategically, that canal is pretty damn important, especially if you're trying to set up a new currency, if you're trying to establish your network of countries as the new dominant economic power in a new geopolitical reality and a multipolar geopolitical reality in the wake of what was a unipolar political reality after the fall of the Berlin Wall and the United States dominating as Godzilla, not only militarily, but economically around the world and controlling all that oil in the Middle East. And isn't it interesting that we've got all this eruption now in the Middle East and what would create so much unrest around the world where people come out en masse into the streets for these massive protests? Is that all organic or is that somehow generated through information warfare? I would say the latter. It isn't just happening because people are that upset about it. You think about all these other protests that have been happening over the last number of years, the George Floyd thing, you know, um, Black Lives Matter stuff. You've got Every Child Matters protests. Um, you know, well, all of these things may have a basis for real, you know, genuine social concern. The massive protests that we see in the streets. I don't think that's just natural. That's because people are getting messaging. There's marketing that's going out there. It's like, show up on this date. Here's the protest. Everybody come out. Worldwide rally for this or a worldwide rally for that. And it's going on globally, man. Like, And different groups are being bombarded with different you know, specific kinds of messaging. And you've got a network of all of this activism going on out there. And I think that it's just gotten to a point where it's actually so darn efficient that these networks of activists, especially on the left, are pretty darn effective with it, right? So anyway, that's kind of what I see going on. And then you, you look at how these BRICS nations are positioning themselves. You can certainly see that the BRICS nations are aligning themselves with which side, Israel or Palestine? Definitely Palestine. And on the West, West, the United States, Israel. Even as people are protesting in the streets, the government's on the Israeli side. So definite battle lines drawn there. Very clear distinction. You can absolutely see it. <clears throat> Even though you say, oh, well, you know, the Russians are talking to both sides. But <clears throat> is Iran? Who's Iran aligned with? Russia. Russia's aligned with Iran. China. Taiwan. You see, it's all lining up. And then you've got the Arab nations in the area, and you can see who's aligned with whom. And that's all fairly predictable. Israel is the United States. The United States is Israel because Israel can't survive without support from the United States. Israel was created really by the West and has been propped up always by the United States and 
by extension, Canada as well. So we're absolutely tied in with that. And then anything that happens as a result, we're going to be held accountable for that too, because that's an occupation. We're in an occupation. The United States is in an occupation. Everybody's occupying everything. And so at the end of the day, we're all going to be held accountable for not just the occupation there, but the occupation here, the occupation all over the world. And how are you going to come to terms with that when some people come to hold you accountable for the occupation? And then look at what's going on in South Africa. The Wagner Group. We all know what happened to the leader of the Wagner Group, don't we? Yeah, well, I'd ask him what happened, but he's dead. Things didn't work out so good for him when his plane dropped out of the sky. After he tried to stage that whatever the heck that thing was against Vladimir Putin. Just saying. Okay. But his group, they had troops really kind of like heavily involved in the fighting in Ukraine. But over in South Africa, what, what, what were those troops doing over there? The Wagner troops? You can call them mercenaries, private guns for hire. You know, for a long time, you know, Russia, I think, was kind of even denying that they were supporting the Wagner group in those in that capacity. But over time, they did come to acknowledge it. And so you've got these troops, but not even huge numbers of them. It's an extremely efficient way for them to manage things and assert their influence and... Uh, And just operate in a way that is in their own best interests militarily and economically and politically in South Africa because they were supporting, you know, certain sides um, politically in South Africa. They have been. And so they actually control help to con that helps to control diamond mining, lumber resource development over in South Africa in the best interests of the BRICS nations. Brazil, Russia, India. China, South Africa, where the Wagner troops have been really letting, you know, the local forces, that they've been supporting those local forces, but in, in limited numbers they've been there in, in support role, and it's been pretty efficient, and this is where the alignments are. And so it's all about resources in South Africa, resources in China, lithium mining, right, Afghanistan. electric vehicles. And then on the Western side, you know, it's hard to understand what's going on over here, but you have a lot of corruption with some politicians who for a long time, you know, you look at Biden, what, where, where do Biden's loyal loyalties lie? Well, you know, you see his activities in Ukraine. Well, is he, you know, it's I John and well, you just take the, the aerial view. A lot of it isn't about political ideology. It's just about who's paying who. Where's the money? Where's the corruption? Where's the money laundered? Who gets this? Who gets that? What was Biden involved with in Ukraine before the war broke out? They wanted to go to war so bad over there. They wanted to go on war to war in Syria too, but Trump stopped that by getting elected. If, if, he, hadn't, if he hadn't been elected, <laughs> the United States would have been in there like a dirty shirt fighting in Syria. I could see that in the news back at that time. They wanted to go to war so bad in Syria. And that was all, all this crap, man, with the West. It's like when they go to war, 
It's because these politicians, I think, are generally pretty much in the bag for somebody. Now, in the case of this thing with Israel, regardless of the motivations, the true motivations, and you can sit there and say, well, this they're just lying in pockets, and yeah, there's probably a lot of truth to that too. But I'll say this. The other side's working at it too. The CIA gets blamed for everything. The United States gets blamed for everything. Israel got blamed for the attack that Hamas perpetrated. Why would that happen? I'm not buying it anymore, man. I'm not buying this double speak. Um, I'm not going to sit here. I, I, I just, I, <laughs> the speculation becomes fact when it's repeated often enough. Well, they've got the most protected and most sophisticated security system to protect the, the Israel. So there's no way that they could have got in there at all. It's not even possible. So it's Israel's fault that those guys came in there because they wanted it to happen. Because they're actually, they just wanted an excuse to go in there and kill everybody. Really? You know, that sounds like, actually, that sounds like an excuse for the other side. Because occupation is justification for resistance. And anything they do is okay. Because they're the underdog. They're the oppressed. And that's really how you sell this stuff to people anyway, isn't it? Isn't that how you do it? It's the oppressed versus the oppressor. And where have we heard that before? Well, we've actually heard it from the communists. I hear it from fascists. Because they're socialists too. And then I hear it from the, even the more moderate socialists. It's all about equity. And you can't have equity if, uh, you know, you're living with the, uh, the benefits, the privileges that have come from centuries of colonialism. Oh, man, what are you going to do about that? Well, I guess you better go back to where you came from. Everybody pack up and leave. That'll solve it. Get the heck out of here. Get all those people out of Gaza or get all the Israelis out of Israel. Because nobody seems to want to compromise. Nobody's going to let the past go. Because nobody ever seems to learn the damn lesson. Oh, they learn the history. They learn the dates. And then they learn, or maybe they just, Embrace blame. They play the blame game. And it just goes on and 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 on. And it just doesn't seem to damn well stop, does it? Their fault, their fault. They did this in 1936. They did this in 1945. They did this in 1972. They killed Jesus. No, they killed Jesus. Go back to where you came from, they say. Folks, I wouldn't even know where to go. I don't know enough about my own family history to even know where the hell to go. And even if I could go there, I don't know if they would have let me go there. So, at the end of all this, Seems like maybe I'll be the one who's homeless. 
a man without a state stateless. That's an interesting thought, especially since we have a prime minister who says that Canada is the world's first post-national state. Oh, oh, oh. Doesn't that set things up nicely? With no particular culture. Canada. And then I see people saying, we have to, de you know, decouple from the monarchy. Okay. Barbados did it. You don't have to go to war to do that. You know, you can just ask. They would let that happen. I'm sure of that. So we could do that. And then we could have a republic. It might be all right. It's a whole other set of questions, but it all ties right back in, doesn't it? Where would we go? Where would I go? I don't know. Do I have property rights? We're all just a bunch of occupiers. Are we? Are we? And what about the people who have come here over time? Are they occupiers too? Are these Palestinians? Oh, here's a question. You see, you see, you bring the Palestinians here. They say that the Israelis are occupying their land. They get pushed out of Gaza. They come to Canada. Now they're refugees. But it's the First Nations peoples who are here first. So anybody that comes now, would that not constitute being an occupier? So now the Palestinians become occupiers in another place. How are you going to reconcile that one? See how stupid this stuff gets after a while? I don't know. As long as they get along with all the Jewish people up in Toronto, because you know what? Like quite a few Jewish people up there. And I see, you know, great Jewish communities. I see a lot of Jewish business people have contributed like huge amounts of money to the hospitals up there. Great hospitals. And I see people of every race and every religion at those hospitals. And I see people from other walks of life contributing to the hospitals up there too. I, and everybody's fighting. Maybe we just should focus on building better hospitals. I don't know. Speaking of hospitals, I almost forgot about this story. You know, there was a cyber attack on all the hospitals in this region, and they're still recovering from it. I told you about it. Um, man, well, here's a media release. I got, I had this thing queued up, and this affects a lot of hospitals in this region. This is a cyber attack on hospitals. 
And, you know, when I was thinking about this one, you want to talk about terrorism? You want to talk about bombing hospitals? I'm telling you that we're involved in an information war. Would it be a war crime, do you think, for a government or a group to target computer systems at hospitals and, and, and initiate an attack on hospitals? Because that's what seems to be going on here. And people aren't even really talking about it much. I don't think the government wants to say very much about this. This is happening in Canada, in my community, in the whole region around here. A cyber attack on the hospitals. Right now. I'll bring up the release for you. And I'm sitting here telling you tonight, brace yourselves. There's worse coming. And it's here now. A lot of people's medical appointments have been canceled. This has been extremely disruptive. This is putting people's health at risk. Here's the release. Let's read it. This is, says, okay, so this is from today. This is Blue Water Health, Chatham Kent Health Alliance, Erie Shores Healthcare, Hotel Du Grace Healthcare, and, and Windsor Regional Hospital. And our shared service provider, transform shared service organization were recently the victims of a ransomware attack. We did not pay a ransom and we are aware the data connected to the cyber incident has been published. Huh? So they've taken confidential information, whoever the hackers are, the cyber terrorists, and they posted this information online. Making progress, we have made progress in evaluating the affected data and can share some preliminary conclusions. This attack did not involve the theft of databases linked to the following functions. Employee payroll, accounts payable, electronic health record for all institutions other than Blue Water Health and donor information. The attackers targeted a Blue Water Health patient database report. They also were able to steal data from an operations file server that housed a segmented employee shared drive used by all our hospitals. The shared drive data included patient and employee information of varied amounts and sensitivity. This incident has affected each institution differently. Some are less severely impacted than others. The stolen data is in many formats, some of which are easier to analyze. While the hospitals are sharing an update today, please understand that more work must be done to understand precisely which individuals and what data types were taken. The following is an initial update on what is known to date. It is not a comprehensive report on the stolen data. As analysis remains ongoing, it is important to note that this is not the official notification of individuals. It's a media release. Blue Water Health can confirm the theft of a database report. The stolen data includes information and approximately 5.6 million patient visits, about rather 5.6 million patient visits made by approximately 267,000 unique patients. Wow. The stolen database report did not include clinical documentation records. Blue Water Health is still in the process of determining the precise individuals included in this database report and the data that was taken and will notify those affected in accordance with the law. Well, it does not, well, it does appear that information pertaining to employees was affected to some degree 
BWH has reached the preliminary conclusion that no employee or professional staff, social insurance numbers, or banking information was taken. Out of an abundance of caution, since Monday, October 30th, BWH has been distributing two years of complimentary credit monitoring to all employees and professional staff. So here in my town, Chatham-Kent Health Alliance says electronic health record was not affected by this incident. The impacted shared drive did contain some CKHA patient information that CKHA is currently analyzing. CKHA can confirm the theft of an employee database report containing information of about 1,446 individuals employed by Chatham-Kent Health Alliance as of February 2nd, 2021. If you were an employee, if you're employed by CKHA on that date. CKHA believes that your data was taken, including name, address, social insurance number, gender, marital status, date of birth, and basic pay rate. The database report does not appear to include professional staff or volunteers. No banking information was stolen. CKHA has been distributing two years of complimentary credit monitoring on site. Since Monday, October 30th, CKHA will contribute, continue to provide on site to current employees to the foreseeable future. And we encourage all employees to sign up for those past employees. It's all employee stuff. Erie Shores Healthcare, what's going on there? They, yeah, they had an impacted shared drive and there was a limited set of data, stolen data that includes 352 current and past employees information, no banking information stolen. And they're continuing to monitor. I mean, down in Windsor, Ontario, um, a limited portion of a shared drive used by hospital staff was accessed by that by the attackers. And the preliminary review indicates that in the shared drive that was breached, some patients were identified by name only or some with a brief summary of their medical condition, but not with any patient charts, electronic medical records. So a lot of patient information compromised here, folks. And, you know, medical data is supposed to be confidential, which also comes back to what was going on during the pandemic, which was, you know, patient confidentiality, you know, informed consent, all these ethical issues. And, uh, you know, your, your medical status is supposed to be confidential, which also is about, you know, why when you were going to a restaurant and they were saying, are you vaccinated? You know, that was actually a violation of people's rights. None of your damn business. But anyway, they're talking about all that stuff here. And the, everything here has been compromised. And then, as I said, you know, I know that this was affecting appointments for people, has been. Next steps, all hospitals have some degree of patient and employee information affected. All our hospitals are diligently investigating the stolen data to determine who is impacted. The difficult process will take time. All hospitals are committed to transparency and will provide regular updates as we learn more. The teams continue to work around the clock to restore systems. In the coming days, we anticipate providing a timeline on the restoration of operations at our facilities. This has been going on for a long time. Okay. And uh, it's taking them quite a long time to get things back up and running because, of course, it was ransomware. So they couldn't access these systems. They, no patient information. How do you schedule things? How do you know what the patient history is? How are the doctors supposed to perform operations if you don't know what the patient's medical history is because you don't have access to the data? And then you have to you know, accumulate all this information again. And maybe you're dealing with an elderly person who has Alzheimer's disease or something and they can't remember stuff. So you need those records. 
You have to have all that information because it's not just in a paper file folder in a filing cabinet someplace anymore. It was on these drives and they couldn't access the information. They still can't. And it says here, <clears throat> a patient cybersecurity hotline has been established for inquiries. Please call. And here's the number 1519-487-6212. Staff questions can be directed to their HR teams. And it says, we condemn the actions of cyber criminals. And that's what they are in the healthcare sector and elsewhere in our communities and around the world. We understand the concern this incident has raised within our communities, including patients and our employees and professional staff. And we deeply apologize. Well, you know, crying out loud. Yeah, they probably should have had better security. But it was the hackers, the attackers who did it. I'm talking about a hospital. Is that terrorism? Is that... Is that... like That's like cyber bombing a hospital. Has anyone died because of this? Has anyone not received a critical medical procedure that was needed right away that maybe now they've had to wait too long and they passed away because of this? I don't know. Maybe we'll never know. Maybe that isn't something that's quantifiable. Is this related to any of the other stuff going on around the world? Hmm. Don't know. Big question mark. Will we ever find out who's behind it? Probably not. Yeah, because it's likely coming from offshore. <sighs> That's it. Things have changed. We could just keep on working, keep on fighting, keep on keeping on. Tomorrow's going to be a new day. They'll get those computers back up. They'll get that data back. We'll get people in there. We'll get them their operations. We'll keep on working. It's just another hurdle. It's just another challenge. I think a big part of the key, folks, is media literacy and embracing your personal responsibility. Keep your head screwed on straight. Be aware. Our government might not be doing all the things right, but also be aware that just because our government isn't doing everything right, some of these other governments are at war with us. And even though I don't have anything really against any of these other countries, and we're still actually trading with them, they're at war with us. And they're targeting you. It's your responsibility. It has to be your responsibility. You have to embrace your personal responsibility to analyze this stuff Make yourself more media literate. 
in the face of this information onslaught, cyber terror, information warfare. They're coming for you. They're coming for us all. There's a war on for your minds. You're on the front lines every single day. And I'll be here tomorrow. And I'll be fighting again with you. Pursuing truth. Because that is ultimately what will set us free. I love you guys. I'll be back tomorrow night, 6 p.m. Eastern Standard Time on the flip side. This has been a Maverick Multimedia Productions.